AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. I'm Mike Pearson, sitting in for Mike Adams today. He's finished up a two busy days at the DTN Ag Summit. I'm here today to bring the market news. And to start, we are going to be talking markets. Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities is going to join me. Clayton, are you getting ready for the WASD report to be released tomorrow? Hey, good morning, Mike. Yeah, we sure are. Um, Typically, the December report is fairly tame, but you never know. That's for darn sure with all the volatility we're seeing these days. But uh, hopefully, it'll give us a little guidance on what USDA is thinking on demand. Yeah, and let's talk about that. As you look to tomorrow's numbers on the corn side, Clayton, what are you expecting to see for corn demand? Are there going to be any changes to the ethanol number? I would guess there would be. I mean, the pace has been so red hot lately, and even though the uh, ethanol margins have taken a hit in the last week or two here, uh, crude oil is holding together. It's had a pretty decent comeback the last week or two, so uh, with these margins still so rich, I think you could build a good case for, oh, not a big increase, but 25 or 50 million bushels. I, I think eventually you could see as much as uh, 100 million bushels added, maybe something like that if this pace continues. But um uh, obviously, a lot of that's going to depend on uh, miles driven and the whole COVID thing and all that. But for right now, indications would suggest a little bit of an increase, we would think. And that's good news. Folks tuning in yesterday, we had a release from the EPA and the USDA. Finally saw the renewable volume obligation numbers from EPA for 2020, 2021, and 2022. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Jeff Cooper about just how those numbers might impact the industry. Clayton, ethanol plants have been strong bidders for the past, well, geez, since coming into harvest. And that demand should stay strong as you look out to the future. Do you think the export demand for corn is going to stay as strong as it has been? over the recent months? I would say so. It's just been sort of a uh, steady uh, force here. Uh, exports have been really good for corn and kind of overshadowed. There's been so much attention on, on the lagging pace of the bean exports. But you get down to it, the corn numbers are, are very respectable. We're definitely on track for what the USDA's uh, total projection is. Uh, of course, we got a huge flash sale this morning to Mexico. Uh, about, what, 73 million bushels or something like that. A little bit of that was new crop, though, but still. Uh, they're saying that's like the sixth largest single-day corn sale uh, ever, which uh, surprised me, to tell you the truth, that it would rank that high. But but the point is, uh, even though Mexico is a steady buyer and uh, usually our largest customer, uh, so it's a kind of routine, that is a really big number, and it just underscores a pretty solid bit of demand beneath us. Of course, the wild card is China. And uh, if they were to come in for some corn, uh, that could really get people excited, I think. But so far, they've been pretty conspicuously absent. Well, let's talk soybeans. That market has seen some pressure in recent months. It seems traders are a little nervous that we could see an increased bean carryout here on tomorrow's USDA report. What are the headline numbers you're looking for in soybeans tomorrow, Clayton? Well, we're surprised the average trade gets is only looking for, what, about a 12 million bushel increase in the carryover or so, uh, and presumably that would be coming mostly from some kind of cut in exports. 
is as poor as the export pace has been, it has improved a little bit uh, in the last oh, two to four weeks. Uh, so whereas for a while you could have built a case maybe for USDA being 150, 200 million bushels too high on exports, I think now it's probably closer to maybe 100 million. So we would look for a cut to exports tomorrow. I would guess uh, 25 million, um, 50 at the most. Uh, but that kind of thing. So I guess our, our inclination would be to think you'd see that carryover rise by you know, 25 million bushels, something along those lines. The soybean oil market, we continue to see that elevation. But as I look at the January contract, Clayton, that is on a steep downtrend. Where do you see this January bean oil headed? Boy, it's really getting clobbered. It's something else. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, you've got wheat and bean oil, which arguably have the most bullish global fundamentals in terms of uh, exporter supplies being so low, and yet they're the two that are getting clobbered the most lately. Uh, but I think this bean oil is just, uh, you know, just on fire for so long. And uh, funds are pretty built up on it. Uh, what could we get down to? Uh, you know, at the pace we're going here, I mean, I would guess would at some point challenge that September harvest low, which was just above 54. You know, kind of test the waters down there, uh, because I don't think the world picture is, is going to change a whole lot at this point. So a lot of it's just going to be money flow, and uh, and and as, as crush days uh, as hot as it has been, it'll you know take care of any pent up demand there in the bean oil market. So, uh, like I said, our guess is probably, you know, another penny, possibly two cents down here. Well, and you mentioned that crush has been so strong here in the bean complex that has driven the supply of meal to really pretty solid levels. Do you see meal pricing weakening as this uh, demand for oil continues? We would think so. Um, I mean, that meal it's kind of like uh, we used to call it the waterbed effect. You know, you push on one corner of the waterbed and the other corner pops up. And so you've seen an awful lot of action like that. There's so much spread action, obviously, in the whole uh, bean complex. But uh, so it's not unusual on a day like this where you've seen a big wipeout in oil for meal to really be firm. Maybe people unwinding, you know, spreads that were positioned the other way or whatever. But get right down to it. Uh, I, I think uh, with, with the bean supply we have and, you know, steady crush flows going here. I think meal has limited upside at this point. And then the Let's wild card, of course, would be if South America weather had a problem. But barring that, uh, I wouldn't think bean meal would have too much upside. Okay. Looking over at the wheat market, you mentioned that is one of the most bullish stories in agriculture now. Do you see that changing tomorrow? Anything in the WASDI that could change that narrative? Well, it's been bullish for so long, but an awful lot of it, Mike, we think has just been uh, index funds loading up on the sweet market. I mean, they're also bullish on the whole inflation narrative. Um, yes, the world exporters have got a real snug balance sheet right now, but you know, so far that has translated zero to, to any kind of increase in U.S. exports. And you get right down to it, that's what's critical, we think, in the in the price discovery process here as far as U.S. markets go. So, uh, you know, the exports wheat have just been dismal. Uh, last week was like the lowest uh, for the crop year, and I think I just read the October month was the lowest uh, uh, wheat total exports for like decades. So, you know, it's, it's just really lacking. Uh, if, if the USDA is going to face reality, we would have to think you'd see wheat exports cut a little bit, maybe 25 million and see a resulting uh, rise in the wheat carryover. So this wheat uh, market, we think, is overdone on the upside. And uh, uh, we think this uh, down, you know, this this pullback right here is uh, way overdue. Do you see any price targets you're watching for on this pullback in Chicago wheat? 
Yeah. Uh, well, the 50-day average is still about nine cents below us right now, around around 788 in the March. At a minimum, we think we'd get that. Uh, eventually, I don't know why we wouldn't test the 100-day average around 760. And at that point, I think it's going to depend on how the you know, spring weather turns out here in the Plains states in the U.S. Well, we'll talk weather at the end of the episode, so stay with us. Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. We'll have more with him on This Week in Agribusiness this weekend. And when we return, we're talking ASF. Stay with us on AOA. AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're starting to see some early signs of the approach the Biden administration wants to take towards relations with China and, and trade in particular. We see U.S. Trade Representative Tai working on uh, building kind of a coalition to work on this issue with the U.S. Let's talk about it with Doug Berry, Senior Director of Communications for the U.S.-China Business Council. What are your thoughts on this approach that we're starting to see from the Biden administration? The big looming issue now is, of course, what happens with the Phase 1 agreement that has provided an opportunity for U.S. farmers to ship their products uh, into China at uh, competitive tariff rates, not the excessive ones that have been slapped on by the previous administration and which uh, China responded to. That agreement expires in January and there's nothing right now to replace it. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson here sitting in for Mike Adams today. We are going to be talking about one of the major issues that has impacted agriculture over the past several years, and that's African swine fever. This is something that researchers have been working on for some time. Dr. Megan Niederwerder, an assistant professor at the Kansas State College of Veterinary Medicine, has been researching just how this virus interacts with our environment. Megan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. You have been researching African swine fever for some time. And Megan, I want to talk to you because you did some of the first research tracking how this virus can travel in feed. Can you explain your concerns about African swine fever potentially crossing the ocean? Yeah. So since 2013, uh, when, when porcine epidemic diarrhea virus was introduced into the United States, We've really had a concern and an awareness that imported feed ingredients may serve as vectors for transboundary swine diseases. And when we started to think about the highest diseases of concern to the U.S. with regards to foreign animal diseases, of course, African swine fever virus was at the top of the list. And we started investigating the stability of African swine fever virus in commonly imported feed ingredients that were exposed to transoceanic shipment conditions. So we simulated the humidity and temperature conditions that feed ingredients would be exposed to during transoceanic shipment. And we were able to discover that African swine fever virus was very stable across a broad range of feed ingredients, indicating that this is a potential risk for introduction and transmission of the virus. With that being said, Megan, what are we doing to ensure the safety of feed coming into this country? Yes, I think it's important to consider how we can reduce this risk. And one of the aspects of that is starting to inventory where your feed ingredients are coming from and considering if you were able to source those ingredients from a country or from a region that does not currently have circulating foreign animal diseases such as African swine fever virus. We've also considered uh, potential recommendations such as holding time to allow high-risk ingredients to be stored for a certain period of time in environmental conditions that will allow the virus to decay and the risk to be lowered. We've also looked into certain chemical mitigants or feed additives that may reduce infectivity of the virus. Okay, so we've got some progress there on keeping the herd safe. I, I wanna take a step back. African swine fever is not new, if I understand it. Why is it becoming such a concern today? Has it changed? Has it mutated? Yes, yeah, so we've, act we've actually known about the virus since 1921, so just about a century now. But the virus has really become more of a concern uh, over the last decade and particularly over the last three years. And the reason that is, is that in uh, 2007, the virus was introduced into the country of Georgia and into the Caucasus region of uh, Europe. And so when we think about uh, the virus being introduced into that region, 
the virus name at that point, at that strain, was ASF Georgia 2007, based on where it was introduced in the year. We think that that virus actually has a potential for increased stability or increased transmission rates because we've seen since that time period that the virus has uh, spread to other countries in Eastern Europe. We then saw that the virus was introduced into China in 2018 and spread fairly quickly throughout the country and also throughout other countries in Asia. And so in particular, we have seen that this strain or strains very similar to ASF Georgia 2007 have this increased ability for transboundary spread. And it looks like that's accelerating. You mentioned Europe. When you look over at Asia, Dr. Niederwerder, I mean, that's where the explosive growth has been over the past three years. That virus, what is causing it to be so contagious in Asia? Yes. Yeah, so one of the aspects of African swine fever virus and why it's so concerning is that it is a very stable virus. It is also a virus that is fairly unique. So it is a large, it has a large genome with uh, many proteins, which complicates the development of a commercial vaccine. Uh, there are no commercially available vaccines for the virus currently. And so once the virus is introduced into a new country or region, the primary way that we control the virus is through biosecurity and the culling of infected or at-risk pigs. And so we've seen that because the virus is so stable and can also be transmitted to other pigs through contaminated pork products, that once it is in a country, it is very difficult to eradicate. And the concern I'm hearing from a lot of American pork producers is that we've got African swine fever kind of knocking on our door down in the Dominican Republic, in the Caribbean perhaps. Is this something that has, has you scientists very concerned? Does the geographic proximity raise the risk of this virus spreading onto our shores? Yes, I think that has also accelerated the concern with regards to this virus. So just this last summer in 2021, the virus was introduced into the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And that was the first time that it's been detected in the Western Hemisphere in almost 40 years. And we know that the last time the virus was in these countries, it was very difficult to, for them to eradicate. And so the close proximity is, of course, concerning, but also just the increased uh, uh, regions and areas in the world in which this virus is currently occurring. We really are trying to do everything we can in this country to prevent the virus from entering our hog farms. Yes, but we've also got to be prepared in case it does. And that's something I wanted to talk to you about. You have recently been awarded a grant to study what happens and how we mitigate the virus should it arrive on our shores. Half a million dollars from the National Pork Board and the state of Kansas, NBAF. What are you going to be researching? What are we going to be trying to do if we have an African swine outbreak on our shores? Yes, I think this is how our research is sort of pivoting at this point. We are, of course, continuing to uh, investigate uh, different ways to prevent the virus from entering, but we are also initiating this project to increase our country's preparedness. 
if the virus was introduced into the country, what procedures, what protocols, what are the best practices for eliminating the virus as quickly as possible after it has been introduced into a farm. And what we're looking at is how do we validate and identify these best practices with regards to elimination of the virus at the pen level after environmental contamination, also in the manure. So thinking about excretions and secretions from the pigs, we wanna be able to eliminate and eradicate the virus from the environmental contamination as well as from infected pigs. What sort of methods are you going to be using in your research to try and eliminate this contamination? Are we scraping the floor? Are we pouring chemicals on it? What do you think is going to be the best approach? Yeah, so we're looking at um, in the presence of different environmental matrices such as organic material or feces, we're looking at can there be or is there a specific temperature that we would be able to heat these excretions uh, up to so that we could inactivate uh, the virus and eliminate it. We're also looking at potential chemicals that we could use to disinfect and inactivate the virus, again, in any runoff or any lagoons, manure pits, thinking about, again, how do we get this farm back to completely negative from the virus so that we can restock and raise healthy pigs in that same farm environment. Dr. Niederwerder, this research is ongoing for the next two years. Where can our listeners keep track of the data you are discovering? Yes, yeah, so the K-State website is a great uh, location that we will continue to update and provide information. We will also, uh, of course, we partner with the National Pork Board who is funding this research. They have been great as far as uh, releasing data and making sure that pork producers are aware of the research that's being funded. And also, uh, we try and do any news releases as soon as data becomes available. And we look forward to sharing those updates as they become available. Dr. Megan Niederwerder, Assistant Professor at the K-State College of Veterinary Medicine, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Mike. And folks, stick with us. When we return, we're going to be talking to Jeff Cooper, CEO and President of the Renewable Fuels Association, about the new RVOs from EPA. AOA is brought to you by... Synex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils, oils that run smart. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. So join us for Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. 
You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. Futures this morning are seen in the red across the grain and oilseed sector. On the ethanol front, the markets pushed corn higher after the EPA released ethanol mandates. There is also talk the EPA may reject a significant number of refinery waivers, and the USDA will announce $100 million for biofuel infrastructure aid. March corn is trading a penny lower at 585, the May contract down a penny at 587 and a half cent. For soybeans, the January contract trading three cents lower at 1247 and a half cent. The March contract down three at 1255 and a fraction of a cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat March down 11 and a half cent at 797. Kansas City wheat March down 13 and a half cent at 814. Minneapolis spring wheat March down two at 1034 and a half cent. The May contract down three and a half cent at 10.19 and a fraction of a cent. Livestock traders are trying to balance the significant weakness of box beef against the strong potential for higher cash. Feedlots are looking for higher prices again this week, posting offers at $3 higher. Cattle supplies look like they may tighten next year. Show lists are larger, which may leave packers less aggressive. However, demand is strong and they will need to purchase for nearby processing needs as well as for the next few weeks. February live cattle down 25 at 138.97. The April contract trading 30 cents lower at 142.15. For feeder cattle, January down a dollar 15 at 163.87. The March contract down a dollar 15 at 166.32. For lean hogs, February down 22 cents at 76.32. The April contract trading 55 cents lower at 81.50. USDA's national pork carcass cutout value for Tuesday afternoon was delayed due to packer submission errors. Monday's PM quote was $83.71. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel diesel that doesn't mess around. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. At the top of the program, I talked about how last, excuse me, yesterday afternoon, we had an update from EPA, much delayed numbers on the renewable volume obligations Finally, they came out. Joining us today to discuss it is Jeff Cooper, the president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, how are you feeling? You happy to see these numbers from the EPA? We're happy that that are finally out. We've been waiting for the better part of a year to see these numbers. 
Um, so we are relieved that they're finally out and, and, um, you know, we, we actually think there's, there's a lot to like in what EPA proposed yesterday. There's certainly some things in there that we don't like. Uh, but on balance, we think it's it's a, a decent proposal for us. So my understanding, Jeff, of what was released yesterday was a, a basically a two-pronged program, partially from the EPA talking about the renewable volume obligations and the SREs, which we can get into, and then a package yeah. from USDA. Were these combined and released together? They were. They were released within an hour of each other, and, and we did get EPA really a package of proposals on the RFS, um, they, they released the volume obligations for 2021 and 2022. Uh, they also, unfortunately, um, released a proposal to retroactively uh, revise the 2020 volumes. Uh, but they also, as you mentioned, deny every single pending small refinery exemption petition, which is great news. Uh, and then, uh, really, an hour earlier, uh, the USDA put out a proposal to um, finally deliver that that long uh, emergency funding for COVID relief for uh, the biofuels industry. So, yesterday afternoon was a busy afternoon for us, and and in balance, we think uh, the ethanol industry came out ahead. So let's talk about the. RVO numbers first. We did get a proposed rollback in 2020. Jeff, how does that work? 2020 is now almost two years behind us. What does messing with these numbers or adjusting these numbers do to change the overall ethanol ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question, and and it does have ripple impacts. I mean, it was more than two years ago that EPA finalized the 2020 uh, renewable volume obligation. It was uh, November or December of, of 2019. Uh, EPA published a 15 billion gallon requirement for conventional renewable fuels like corn ethanol. And that volume appeared and, and was published in the Federal Register. And, and so the, the marketplace uh, looked at that number and, and made decisions and investments based on that number. Proposed reopening and, and retroactively lowering that number is, is very frustrating. Uh, the rationale they're using as well, 2020 was was uh, affected by COVID and the fuel markets were, were really devastated by, by COVID. And, and that's true, they were. Uh, but, but, you know, the ethanol industry, the, the oil refining industry, everybody was devastated by COVID. And we don't see any reason for EPA uh, or any legal basis for EPA to go back and retroactively reopen uh, the 2020 blend obligations. Uh, we, we think it's not uh, permissible for them to do that and, and see any, any market rationale for, you know, to, to, to do that. So uh, we'll be taking a hard look at what they're proposing to do there, and, and we'll be considering uh, challenging that action by EPA. So, Jeff, that was 2020, and then they also released 2021 and 2022's numbers, and I understand that 2022 proposed numbers are the biggest RVOs in history. Is this a win for ethanol? It, it is a win, and, and uh, you're, you're right. 2021, I mean, they, they here we are in December, and they finally uh, got around to proposing the 2021 RVO. Uh, they're suggesting they will just set the 2021 numbers at actual consumption levels, uh, but for 2022, they, they're proposing the statutory requirement of 15 billion gallons, 
Uh, and in addition to that, they are adding another 250 million gallons on top of that 15 billion uh, to to account for a court decision uh, of 2015 uh, where the D.C. Circuit Court uh, ruled in our favor and, and ruled against EPA and found that EPA had illegally waived the 2016 uh, renewable fuel standard requirements. And so, you know, we've been after EPA for years to to um, comply with that court order and restore that lost volume, and they are finally doing that uh, with the 2022 RDO. That sounds like some good news. I want to talk about these SREs. EPA proposed just denying all of the 65 pending SRE uh, uh, exemption requests in front of it. Boy, that's a that's a big shift. It, it is. It's a huge shift, and it's and that's really probably the biggest news out of uh, all all of EPA's uh, proposals yesterday. Uh, 65 pending small refinery exemption petitions. EPA proposed to deny all of those um, outright, and and that's 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 big news because if EPA were to grant those exemptions, we're talking about another three billion gallons of lost biofuel blending demand, and and EPA is is saying no, those refiners need to um, need to account for that, that biofuel blending and and need to comply with their RFS requirements, and and that's that's. Uh, really a substantial shift from from the previous administration's uh, management of the RFS program. Now, they did say they're putting this part of the uh, the release yesterday up for public comment. So I assume there's going to be substantial pushback from at least the affected refiners on the, the SRE denials, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. The refiners will uh, most certainly scream bloody murder on this, and they will uh, you know, they, they will try to convince EPA that they are somehow deserving of, of these exemptions. Um, but, you know, EPA's uh, proposal yesterday makes it pretty clear that the agency um, has done and, and really looked at, um, you know, this question of whether small refiners face any kind of disproportionate economic harm, uh, the RFS, and, and their conclusion is is that there is no disproportionate harm and that, that all refiners face uh, an equal uh, compliance obligation and and you know their compliance costs are passed through to the to the uh, kind of midstream uh, terminal and uh, so so we're we're confident that even with the opportunity to provide additional comments um, from the refiners we, we're we're, com- we're confident that EPA is going to deny those petitions yeah. Okay, it's nice to see that uh, finally coming to an end, seeing that that back and forth of these SREs come to a close. We'll have to yep. see if that maintains. Let's talk about these USDA actions. This uh, $800 million proposed from uh, USDA, Jeff, how is that going to be broken down, and what have you heard for timeline of arrival of these funds? Yeah, so, you know, as we, as we discussed, each, uh USDA did within about an hour of EPA's releases yesterday put out um, their own uh, announcement that they are going to be distributing $800 million uh, to the biofuels industry. $700 million of that will be in the form of emergency relief for COVID. Um, you might recall that, that during 2020, uh, the biofuels industry and, and RFA in particular was, was advocating uh, for inclusion and, and some, you know, some help uh, from USDA in terms of uh, we saw layoffs and, and furloughs and, 
and uh, negative margins. It was just a brutal time for the industry. Um, so USDA uh, back in, in February committed that it would, um, you know, help provide some assistance to the ethanol industry. Uh, it, we, we really didn't see anything from USDA all year long, but, but yesterday USDA came out and said that within the week, within the next seven days, they will open the window for uh, biofuel producers to apply to the agency for um, for COVID assistance and 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 to help uh, offset the losses that were experienced during during uh, you know the COVID nineteen pandemic. So that's big news. The other one hundred million that USDA announced yesterday will go toward uh, biofuel uh, infrastructure, and specifically we're talking about uh, pumps and and underground storage tanks at retail locations uh, will be capable of. Uh, distributing higher blends like like E15 and and even up to E85. So, uh, so that's big news, and and uh, we've been waiting on that for a very long time, and we're pleased to see it come out finally yesterday. Well, Jeff, so with all of this package being released yesterday, it seems as though EPA kind of tried to to split the baby down the middle here in in appeasing both the oil and the ethanol sure. folks. Do you feel like this puts the RVO issue to bed at least for the next year or two? Well, I, you know, I, I think it does. I mean, we've, we've been waiting for some sort of uh, clarity and some sort of um, signal from EPA really all year long. And so we were just happy to see, see numbers and see a proposal uh, yesterday. And, and we do think that if EPA ends up finalizing these numbers, um, it, it should put to bed all that uncertainty and all that confusion in the marketplace um, and, and it should get us on track in 2022 to get the RFS back into a, a into a growth posture, um, and and uh, you know really driving demand and, and consumption for renewable fuels like ethanol, which was always the intent of the broker. So, Jeff, when will these numbers be uh, finalized from U, uh, EPA? Yeah, so it's probably sometime in January. EPA will, um, you know, the. We're in a, a public comment period now, and, and EPA will be receiving uh, written comments from, from us and many other stakeholders. Uh, there will be a public hearing on, on the, all these proposals, uh, but we think uh, sometime in January, EPA will be finalizing all of this. We'll keep an eye out for those updates. Thanks to Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. When we return, folks, we will have more AOAs. Stay with us. AOA is brought to you by Synex Stron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils, oils that run smart. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. 
a message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Egg retailers, co-ops, and custom applicators have enormous productivity requirements. With thousands of acres of fertilizer to apply in a short window of time, they don't have time to make mistakes in the field. Intelligent Ag's Recon SpreadSense is the first ag technology that monitors the flow of product on floaters. The technology identifies flow issues to avoid streaks in the field that can hurt yield potential. Reduce the risk of misapplication by investing in Recon SpreadSense. Never doubt what you're putting out. Visit IntelligentAg.com to learn more. Trains are everywhere. You should always expect one, even on private property. Only cross tracks at designated crossings that fit your equipment. If you don't fit, don't commit. Whatever you're operating, secure your load. 
raise your equipment and avoid getting stuck or causing damage. Minimize distractions. Remember, noisy equipment drowns out the sound of a train. Unless you're crossing, always keep a safe distance from train tracks. Look, listen, live. For more info, go to oli.org. AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Mike Pearson here sitting in for Mike Adams. So glad to have that RVO number released. Now we've got some concrete things we can discuss as we're addressing this ethanol industry going forward. Mike Adams tomorrow will be talking to Ron Lamberti from the American Coalition for Ethanol. So do be sure to tune into that. There is a lot to unpack with this issue. But it's time to talk weather. Looking back here a little bit, back to Friday, Ed Valley was on the program, discussed the potential for winter weather across much of the Northern Plains. Well, it happened. He's back with us today to discuss it in detail. Ed, last weekend storm, anything surprise you about it as it worked its way across the Northern Great Plains? You know, it, it was one of those deals where the, the forecast of the storm was pretty well done. You know, the models did a good job, and that snow came into the Canadian prairies, got part of northeastern Montana, came into North Dakota and northern Minnesota, and a lot of folks did pretty well in the snow department and the moisture department, more importantly. Uh, so no, not too much to, uh, you know, surprise us too much, but I will say some of those amounts in parts of uh, northern Minnesota and parts of northeastern North Dakota were a little bit higher than expected, and, and I attribute a lot of that to the fluffiness of the snow, um, which unfortunately also led to a lot of blowing and drifting. So the impacts largely went as planned, but some of those amounts that came in, a lot of 8, 9, 10-inch amounts that were reported. So a little bit higher than expected, but I think the imp impacts did just fine. Ed, 10 inches, 8, 10 inches of fluffy snow. How much actual moisture content do you figure is in that? That's a really, really good question because we, we can get kind of sidetracked sometimes by the amount of snow that falls. And you're, that's a great question because it's a lot lower than you would think. Typically in a normal snowstorm in the, in, in the middle of the country, we average about a 12-inch snow to 1-inch of liquid ratio. So in theory, you get a foot of snow, you get an inch of moisture. Great. However, when it's a fluffier snow, the amount of snow to liquid goes up. So instead of it being about 12 inches to 1 inch of liquid, this storm was about 18 to 20 inches to 1 inch of liquid. So those 8, 10-inch amounts were really only about a half inch of moisture, which is still good. But when you look at just the snowfall amount, you might think it was a little bit higher. Yeah, that makes sense. And that drought-parched area of Montana, you know, the northern Great Plains, all the way through north South Dakota and Minnesota, I, as I pulled up the radar today, it looks like we've got some more systems marching their way across. Ed, are we going to see anything substantial over the next day or two as far as snowfall or rain? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and right now, we do have just a little bit of light snow moving across parts of North Dakota this morning. Doesn't look like a big deal, maybe up to an inch or so in, in some areas, but most of that's going to stay uh, west of the Red River Valley. I think it's mostly going to be across north-central North Dakota. So not too big of a deal, but something just to keep an eye out for. It's going to be a cold day and a breezy day as well, so it could have a little blowing and drifting of snow. But for, mo for the most part, most areas will end up on the dry side here over the next few days. 
Well, Ed, I pulled up the radar and I scrolled it way over to the Pacific Ocean. And my goodness, it looks like we've got a lot of activity brewing out there, particularly in the, the Gulf of Alaska, along the Aleutian Islands, down all the way towards Hawaii. How much of that moisture is going to make its way to the mainland United States? Yeah, so it looks like a decent amount, and, and we do have a storm system on our, on our maps for the Friday time frame, and that one could be significant, but it looks to be further south than what we saw here last Friday. So moving forward, it looks like parts of uh, Wyoming, parts of southern South Dakota, northern Nebraska, parts of northwest Iowa and southern Minnesota could be in for you know a three to six, maybe four to eight inch snowfall here as we head towards the, the Friday into Friday night time frame. So it's been warm, I know, but it does look like Mother Nature is still going to be uh, throwing some winter our way coming up. Well, it, it has been warm, Ed. I was at the Iowa Farm Bureau Convention yesterday talking to growers that, you know, there's no frost in the ground here in Iowa, so they're still putting tile in. We've got guys still pulling on anhydrous as the ground isn't frozen yet. When do you expect temperatures here across the central Midwest to actually start to feel like winter? Yeah, and, and it's funny because there are some cold days here and there that we're seeing, but you're exactly right. The, the persistent cold that we need to really get that frost in the ground just isn't there yet. And honestly, over the next 10 days, I don't think we're in for any major cold. So I, I really think it's going to have to wait for that Christmas week time frame and maybe even into kind of the New Year's time frame before we can really get some bigger plunges of colder weather in here to get that persistent frost. But until then, we're going to be seeing a lot of temperatures in the 30s and 40s during the day and lows in the upper 20s to near 30 at night. So there's not a lot of deep cold in the forecast over the next 10 to 15 days. You know, when I was growing up, Ed, if we had an easy start to winter, the assumption was we are going to pay for it at the end of winter. As you look out with the, the La Nina strengthening, uh, do you anticipate a colder, harsher winter to come, or might we be sitting fairly pretty throughout this whole winter season? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's another good question. And I think the further northwest you go, across the, the northern plains and into the Canadian prairie, that part of the world, so the Dakotas, Montana, parts of uh, Wyoming up into the Canadian prairies. I do believe as we head into the end of this month and into January, I think we may pay for it. I think, especially on the cold side of things, you know, we, we need the moisture as well. And we're starting to see some of that storm track show up now. We got that thing last Friday. We're going to have this one coming up this Friday. So the moisture in the, the occasional storm is, is going to continue, but I think we're going to start seeing more intrusions of cold weather as we head into the, the last week or so of December, and then as we move into the beginning of January. And Ed, when that cold weather comes down, how far south do you see it dropping? Is this going to be abnormally cold to the south, or are we going to be fairly seasonal? So typically in La Nina, we have what we call a southeast ridge. So think about the Carolinas, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, that part of the world usually stays warmer. And then up north and west, like we just talked about, it's a little bit colder. So in between, I think we're going to get colder, but I think the strongest cold values might end up to the north side. All right. Well, things to watch out for as winter continues along here across the northern Great Plains. Ed Valley from Empire Weather, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And folks, Mike Adams returns tomorrow with more conversations here on AOA, so do be sure to tune in. AOA is brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel. 
Diesel that doesn't mess around.